Welcome to the O'Reilly Security Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Allen. This week, I speak with Kelly Shortridge, Detection Product Manager at BAE Systems Applied Intelligence. We'll be talking about how common cognitive biases affect security decision-making, how decision trees can help teams overcome assumptions and build more dynamic defenses, and how building security into user experience design could lead to a more secure future. Enjoy the show. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for joining me today on the O'Reilly Security Podcast. Thanks for having me, Courtney. I'm really excited to have you today. We're going to be talking about behavioral economics and security and game theory, both topics that you've been discussing openly recently. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's been one of my focus areas for research, and I think uh, there's a lot of exciting stuff happening in the space. Great. Well, let's by telling start by telling everyone a little bit more about you. Uh, what have you been focused on recently? And briefly, what's your history in the security space? Yeah, so I have a very odd background in information security. It's uh, definitely atypical, though I'm not sure if there is a typical security background. I started out in investment banking doing mergers and acquisitions, covering the information security industry, and pretty quickly fell in love with the vulnerability research side of things, like reading about different uh, exploitation techniques, hearing kind of the latest attacks. It all fascinated me. So after investment banking, I decided to start my own startup that was doing mobile monitoring and access control. And then from there, actually moved to BAE Systems commercial group called Implied Intelligence, which is where I am now doing product management, covering all of their detection technologies. So for any of the security software products that use any sort of detection, I basically make sure that we are detecting the right things in the right way. Um, as far as research, I think most of it has been kind of in this intersection of uh, behavioral economics and security where they overlap. Um, and I've only, I think, scratched the surface on it. So as far as recently, I've been really keen on this idea of um, complexity. I was actually, I saw a talk from Troopers, I think it was a few years ago, talking about the fact that if you think about a lot of traditional security strategies and um, vendor and tool procurement, it's actually additive only. Very rarely do we see uh, companies stripping away their security solutions and simplifying whatever security architecture they have. So now I've been very keen on figuring out you know, how are security products maintained, how are they chosen, and then more importantly, is there any sort of process in place for them to be stripped away? And how do companies, because complexity not only... Um, it's just a, a burden on resources for organizations, but it also increases insecurity. So it's why are companies kind of living in this sort of very inefficient status quo? Uh, so I've been starting to do some research around that. It's uh, very early stages today, but it's something that's kind of in the back of my mind as something that's a good one to focus on more. Yeah, very interesting and important topic. Frankly, I'm surprised it's not something I've heard more about. Yeah, you would think. I think uh, sometimes these are seen as boring problems in information security. It's a lot sexier to read about whatever new, you know, exploitation mitigation Microsoft has implemented and obviously any of the new bugs that come out. But things like IT asset management, it's or even some of the GRC things, I, I'm actually a big fan of them because I think starting at the basics is really important and something that's ignored. And I think this complexity idea, it's really returning to first principles on 
why is it additive only, particularly when I think it's obvious to anyone if you just tell them, okay, you're adding all these security tools year after year and not really reevaluating whether they're working, not really stripping everything away. It makes sense that it would increase insecurity, but no one's really addressing that fact. Um, So I'm hoping maybe through some of this new work that hopefully will come out maybe over the next year or so, um, I can start to bring attention to it. I'm excited to hear more about that. I'd love to go back to the topic of behavioral economics. I'm really curious how you stumbled upon the topic or what brought you to exploring behavioral economics as they apply to security. I was actually a huge fan of behavioral economics uh, growing up in my teen years. So I decided when I was about 11, I was definitely going to study economics because uh, it really hit me that it's ultimately the study of choice and how humans behave and make decisions. And to me, that's basically how the world operates. Um, that's that's all of our society, our you know economy and everything. So I viewed it as almost this framework to understand the world. So I fell in love with that very early on, um, studied it in school. And then as I kind of went about the industry, I would mostly rant to friends who, particularly on the offensive side of things, but kind of across the board in the industry about, you know, there's all these biases in place and people don't seem to be understanding them. You know, you're existing in a super inefficient status quo in the industry and no one's doing anything about it. And they encouraged me instead of just ranting to them over, you know, drinks or dinner to start to talk about it at a broader scale and hopefully start the conversation around it. That's great. It's also touching upon security or insecurity as a human problem versus just a technical problem. And I think that's a theme that we see really frequently. I would definitely agree. And I think it's becoming less controversial to argue that the biggest problems in security right now are actually human problems. I mean, if you think about even just like the talent shortage, but really going into the fact that it's user behavior that most often compromises organizations or compromises the individuals themselves, the fact that the user experience design for most security tools is woefully inept. Um, it's It seems to be mostly done by security engineers rather than consulting uh, UX experts. Um, I think across the board, it really is a people problem. And I think um, a lot of times people have been pretending as if people behave as computers and, oh, they shouldn't click links or, you know, they should be doing this or that. I would say that extends actually to defenders um, uh, that I think it's, it's been really ignored and to the detriment of the industry as a whole. So I'm, I'm hoping it'll be less controversial to say that it's ultimately uh, largely based on human problems, but I, I certainly think it is. We hope to see that as well. Um... One of the core principles of behavioral economics is related to this kind of human problem. It's cognitive biases and their effects on decision making. So I'd love if you'd give me a brief overview of how cognitive biases manifest themselves in the infosec decision making. Sure. So there there are a bunch of cognitive biases. I think probably the ones uh, with which people are most familiar, things like Dunning-Kruger, where it's over half of the people think that they're above average intelligence, which obviously the math doesn't quite work out there. Mm. And uh, But cognitive biases, I think if you look on the Wikipedia list of cognitive biases, it's insanely long. Um, I'd say it pervades pretty much all of our thinking across a bunch of different levels. But in the context of information security, I'm sure that I've only scratched the surface as far as what biases there are. At a high level, biases are really just that you know, people make shortcuts in their decision making because our brains were optimized for evolution, you know, making sure we could survive, not really the modern sort of environments we face today. So people take these sort of mental shortcuts, they use heuristics that result in sort of weird thinking. Um, A big one, it it came out of uh, the theory of prospect theory, which was the original theory in behavioral economics, 
essentially people are pretty bad at evaluating um, potential outcomes of things. So they tend to overweight small probabilities and underweight really large probabilities. So for example, in information security, I think a lot of the hype we've seen around, you know, the ultra sophisticated niche attacks has been because people overestimate that those are the ones likely to own their organization rather than, you know, underestimate the spear phishing or just general phishing case. Um, And I think that's probably the easiest manifestation to spot as far as industry-wide. But there are other things even on the attacker side. Um, I was talking about yesterday, actually, at the RISC conference that uh, attackers, because they're in what's called the domain of gains, because they have this kind of advantageous position, they tend to be more risk averse. They don't want to lose that advantageous uh, position. So they do things like avoid hard targets unless absolutely necessary and prefer low-hanging fruit, um, you know, repeatable or repackageable attacks. So it's really on both sides. It's not just defenders having these biases. It really manifests on both sides. Obviously, they have different initial conditions as far as their position on, you know, the the offensive or defensive side, who has the advantage, who doesn't. And that's why I think they manifest differently. But there's certainly room to explore both how to improve decision making on the defensive side, but then also how defense can leverage the biases that attackers have in order to improve kind of their overall strategy. An area of research I would love to do, but uh, I've found that it's very hard to get uh, people from this point of view to talk about is I'd love to actually figure out optimizing attacker decision-making from the bias point of view, but it's hard for people to be willing to talk about, you know, conducting offensive operations and uh, how those biases might manifest in their overall decision-making process. Really fascinating stuff. There's a few points that you made um, that are hard to ignore in the context of this larger maybe crisis that we're seeing in some ways with defensive security. Uh, Just the statement that you said that people are bad at evaluating outcomes. That's just shocking and relevant and certainly reflects on sort of what we're seeing. You also talked about defensive security practitioners versus offensive security practitioners. If we were just trying to, in brief, suggest how they might be differently affected by cognitive biases, how would you quickly summarize that? Sure. So that's a very good question. I would say it's really comes down to at least the way I conceive of it now, the idea again from prospect theory, where you have what's called the domain of gains and the domain of losses. So probably the easiest example to give is if you think about gamblers, when they're in the hole, they're a lot more likely to make really risky decisions because they're trying to make up, you know, whatever loss they can by making that really big leap, even if it's really unlikely, and it would be better if either they cut their losses or made safer bets. And that's the domain of losses. And that's where defenders sit. So what I argue is that defenders, for the most part, their biases manifest that they are more willing to make riskier decisions. They're more willing to implement these, you know, anti 1% attacks uh, solutions rather than implementing kind of the basics like uh, two-factor authentication, just good server hygiene, network segmentation. Uh, We see a lot more of them buying those really niche tools because in my view, they're trying to get back to kind of the status quo they imagine where they are, um, they haven't been penetrated. And on the attacker side of things, being in the domain of gains, uh, naturally, that means they are more risk averse. So that means they are more cautious in their methods. Um, They're, for the most part, depending on the attacker, trying to make sure they don't get caught, making sure they have, you know, a good ROI, and they aren't really willing to take big risks. As I said, they, they will be willing to use any sort of attack they can, and the simpler, the better. So even like a 
if you want to talk about like an APT group, if they can use phishing to get in, they absolutely will. They won't be conducting a Stuxnet type attack unless they absolutely have to. Whereas on the defender side of things, particularly if they've just experienced an acute loss, like just found out they have a data breach, they're willing to spend millions and millions on incident response, which if they had spent those millions on maybe more basic controls, they wouldn't have had that situation in the first place. So I think that's probably the simplest example of how they manifest differently. Interesting. Could you walk me through a scenario for how this might play out in a actual decision-making process? So, you know, one of the uh, talks I gave at, I believe it was at Troopers and also at Art into Science, talked a little bit about some of the strategies that defenders can employ. I'll talk about one quickly since it could be a lot of different things. So leveraging some of the prior research in other areas, which naturally it won't necessarily be perfectly applicable to information security, but hopefully pretty close, is the idea that uh, there's this uh, notion called belief prompting, where if you think about, you know, making sequential decisions, if you have some sort of opponent, like an offensive attacker, you want to be increasing the amount of steps you're thinking about um, by at least one, hopefully more. And really, in that sense, it's if I do X, how will my opponent respond? And defenders, a lot of times right now, they have static strategies, they aren't necessarily thinking about how attackers will respond if they implement two factor, if they implement, you know, things like antivirus or whitelisting. And uh, so decision trees to me, for a variety of reasons, are a great way to sort of start to codify um, some of this thinking. So it increases steps by a lot, in theory, not just one step. And also it's very audible. So you basically create these different branches of how you think attackers could move throughout your uh, network to get to their end goal. And included in that, uh, you also put in what defensive strategies you would put in, as well as the probability of success that the defensive strategy will have in blocking any sort of attacker action. And I give an example of a decision tree on one of my blog posts and a few of my different slides. But in doing that, you're essentially writing down here are the assumptions we have about how likely our defensive tools are to work, how likely attackers are to use certain moves. And that means if you have some sort of breach or incident, if you get new data on attacker groups, you can start to refine the model and figure out where maybe your assumptions fell through. So I think it, it keeps you honest with tangible metrics, which is important for some of these cognitive biases. A lot of it is we really like the idea that we are uh, internally consistent in our thinking and that we no, of course we knew it. And uh, self-justification is pretty easy to do, particularly retroactively. So having something where it's, you know, we all agreed that here are our assumptions about what was going to happen. Here's where we failed, I think is a lot better. And it keeps it neutral in some ways rather than, you know, oh, this person is to blame for the breach. It's, well, it just means our assumptions need to be tweaked a little bit. Um, and I think even if the assumptions aren't 100% spot on, I don't think they have to be. I think even just thinking about it in this mindset counters a lot of the typical cognitive biases we see from short-termism, again, to the self-justification, some of the things like availability, um, which is where if you've just seen you know, the latest hyped up bug in the news, you'll probably think that's more of a threat than it actually is to your organization. So it really makes you think about, okay, what's the actual threat model? How can we think about this? Not just from here are the attackers, here's what they might do, but also how can we counter it? Um, so I'd say that's probably the, the easiest strategy defenders can incorporate they can write it on a whiteboard. If they want fancier software, they can do that. 
but I think it's the most effective as far as immediately improving decision making. So what we're really talking about here is, well, first off, awareness, um, taking careful notes of your assumptions, talking them through, um, evaluating where you might have failed. And the other thing that you seem to be really touching upon here is this idea of data-driven security, Um, falling back on metrics instead of assumptions. Is there anything else you'd add to that? I think data-driven is absolutely crucial. Um, I think it's something we've seen out of a lot of the forward-thinking defenders and tech companies. The problem I see, though, is sometimes with data-driven, you know, the, the InfoSec marketing machine is latched onto it and defenders end up giving overwhelmed because they're adding more hay in search of a needle and that's mm. not at all the right approach. So it's, are you collecting the right sort of data? Is it actually data that's actionable? And I hate that buzzword, but it didn't it does have its use. Um, you need to make sure that the data is actually usable and it's not just more stuff for you to sift through. Um, I think things like KPIs, I think those are only going to grow in importance. Um, and it's, I think there are some ways you can get some easy KPIs, just time between your detection, time between remediation and starting to create those sort of metrics. But I, I do like in general that from a kind of behavioral point of view, that data is in some ways very neutral. So it allows people to take a step back and not apply so much, you know, personal pride in something or, you know, personal feelings. It's, you know, these are assumptions or these are the numbers that are coming out. This is the data that's coming out um, rather than it being, you know, my theory or their theory and bickering over that. Certainly. It's important to have that balance of uh, data, but also applying it and looking at the assumptions and um considering how we're making decisions. Fantastic overview of uh, some of the problems that we're currently facing in security. Speaking of decision-making, you've talked a lot about game theory. Um, Could you give me an overview of how game theory plays into decision-making and the dynamics of InfoSec? So uh, a lot of game theory um, I've seen applied to information security is really relying on what I would call game theory 101. It's a very simplistic notion of how people playing games. And just at a high level, game theory is just if you think about um, sequential games, and by that I mean where people make one move after another, it's not just one decision at a time, they have some sort of opponents, that's really the sort of games people are talking about in that context. So traditional game theory, there are uh, things like the prisoner's dilemma, it's kind of simple payoff matrices and thinking about that, what behavioral game theory says, and what I've been talking about and trying to wean the industry off of traditional game theory a bit more is behavioral keeps in mind that there are dynamic environments that, you know, the people that are involved in the game are human. They aren't machines. They aren't operating perfectly rationally. Um, you know, it's a non-zero-sum game because if an attacker hacks you, if you don't know about it and all they've taken is, you know, intellectual property and let's say they, they only want to have it on hand, they aren't even going to use it, you haven't necessarily lost very much at all, which I think is an uncomfortable truth in some ways, uh, based on what we see in the industry. But it's not zero sum, you have incomplete information and imperfect information, which just means you don't really know who your attacker is, you can't see every move they make. Um, There's information asymmetry on both sides, you know, ideally, the defender knows their own network, they know the home turf, the attackers may have um, more knowledge of like what vulnerabilities exist in the defender systems, because that's obviously um, their, their aim. And then uh, it's just a dynamic environment, like very rarely are IT systems static, you know, the attackers change their methods all the time. Um, So traditional game theory kind of relies on, you know, this is the static model of the world. This is how people will always behave. They'll do these complex calculations in their head. That's not at all how people 
behave in real life. So what I've been trying to do in my research is look at uh, behavioral game theory research from other domains, particularly any that kind of hit on anywhere close to security. So terrorism is a big area that's received some attention. Uh, so leveraging some of those insights and in what are called defender attacker defender games, which again is thinking more about it from a security, maybe it's physical security, but still more of a security mindset and trying to apply some of the insights and research from that area into information security so we can kind of move beyond those somewhat simplistic assumptions and start getting into um, how people are actually behaving in these and thus how we can kind of optimize strategy on the defender side for these games. And uh, at Black Hat, I've started to do research myself actually on creating some experiments, which, you know, they aren't necessarily going to end up in a a big economics journal. I'm not pretending like I have this amazing research lab, um, but I'm hoping that we can at least start extracting some insights from actual information security games to see how some of these kind of quirks manifest, see what strategies might actually work in realistic game scenarios. Are there currently suggestions available or does the current research show how defenders might be able to gain some strategic advantage in this dynamic? Not really, particularly nothing specific to information security. For behavioral game theory, uh, some of the suggestions I've seen and one I love is uh, falsifying information. So I believe the study that was done was using um, some sort of I forget what it was, some sort of industrial control system um, that had a power supply and was basically uh, looking to see how um, jammers, the attacker side of things, could work against defenders. And when defenders falsified the power supply information, they actually ended up getting a huge advantage in deterring attacks. So that was really interesting. And it's something that I've heard about in circles talking about um, or coming from, you know, defense agencies, uh, defense contractors, where they will put in fake, let's say, missile defense system plans, uh, because they know that the attackers will be looking for it. And then, you know, we see globally, sometimes missiles fails, and you have to wonder if maybe that was some sort of you know, fake data that was acquired during a breach. And uh, using things like canaries or honey tokens, is obviously a pretty easy way to do that. Another interesting finding, which was actually, I think, a week before my troopers talk, and I hope more comes out of it. So it kind of shows you how new it was. It's only, you know, two months old at the most, is uh, there's actually now proof that raising the cost of attack does work in deterring attackers. Again, this isn't uh, something that was done with the information security context, but it is in a kind of defender attacker context. But what's interesting as well is there is sufficient level of um, how much the cost of defense is, basically how expensive to defend against really sophisticated taxes after which defenders don't actually spend the money on it and shouldn't because it's not advantageous. And I would say that goes to, I believe it's Mickens and his blog post saying, you know, don't worry about the Mossad sort of attacks. You know, Mossad's going to get you however they can. They have the resources to do it. You really need to be worrying about the attacks that are more easily preventable um, because even, as I was saying yesterday in one of my presentations, even if you eliminate, again, those low-hanging fruit, you're starting to up that cost of attack. So I think that's an interesting one. And it's something that I think has been common knowledge among anyone who's had experience on the offensive side, you know, raising the cost of attack, I feel like we hear about all the time, but it's neat to have empirical evidence that it actually works. Yeah, there's definitely a clear parallel there with conversations that we're having in the security community. We also, you've been talking about changing how the industry talks about defensive security specifically. And I'm curious to hear more about how you would describe the current status quo and also how you would like to see the dynamic shift. Defenders, I think, get 
kind of a bad reputation in the industry. And uh, the I, I'm somewhat empathetic, though I do think there's an interesting hierarchy where it's the offensive talent or vulnerability researchers think the defenders are kind of dumb, they don't do things correctly. And then the defenders think that, you know, people in their business or the engineers and developers are dumb and don't think do things correctly. So I think it, it's kind of a weird hierarchy in that way that's not very good at all. So I think the status quo, I would say, is that defenders are seen as kind of running around with their heads cut off. They don't make good decisions. They prioritize the wrong things. You know, they, they're just, you know, they fall under the spell of marketing language and they don't buy the right products. And instead, what I've been trying to do is humanize it a little bit saying, listen, you know, it's it's not really their fault. Their brains are sort of designed this way. And particularly all of the research shows from behavioral economics that in high stress or, you know, whenever it feels like time is very short, our biases ramp up to a thousand because um, our brains are kind of in overdrive and they really switch to that evolutionary, like I have to make a decision now, what's good for survival. So I think it, it is an extremely high stress job. They're blamed for most of the bad things that happen. So I think it's very understandable why these biases manifest and in a big way. So what I've been trying to do is um, really promote understanding what these biases are. Say like, listen, this is why you're thinking this way. This is why defenders are making these sorts of decisions. But hey, there's things that you can do about it. So in a more lighthearted example, I think a cool thing about behavioral economics is um, at least you're aware if you have a problem. So there's, uh, I think it was Ariely that's talked about, you know, his some of his um, experiments, I guess you could say, in dieting. So behavioral economists aren't necessarily better dieters than anyone else, but they're at least aware of why they are bad dieters and why they have those sorts of biases. And I think uh, it's it's very similar in some ways. At least you can start to understand, like, here are the checks and balances I need to make in my own thinking to promote better decision-making and counter these biases. Um, even if you don't necessarily use them, I do think understanding really is the first step towards recovery, if you want to put it that way. So that's why I think it's important to have that narrative, like, listen, here's why you're doing it. And here's what you can do about it, rather than just dismissing it as, you know, a fundamental, you know, lack of insight or intelligence or whatever else, which I think is, uh, it's a, a bad practice that a lot of uh, people on the offensive side of things in the industry do. I think that's a really apt parallel uh, to discuss the dieting aspect. I think a lot of people um, have biases there. I think that a lot of people oversimplify things in that area. And we see so many of the same parallels with InfoSec, um, where people understand that maybe we're up against what should be solvable problems, you might say, but they underestimate the complexity of the systems that surround them and the effect that those things have on defenders. Absolutely. I think the, the best case in one area of uh, that's been really catching my attention as well as anything around UX for security, because I think we've done such a terrible job as an industry of uh, incorporating UX into um, security design, even just you look at I know Chrome, or there's someone at Google has done some research on what sort of, you know, uh, security warnings to show to users, but people lament all the time, whether it's Chrome or other sorts of like browsers, other products that security warnings aren't worded in the right way, either they scare users or people click through them. And no one's really focused on how to really incorporate security into product design itself in a way that makes sense. And I think part of the problem is it's seen as very black and white. Um, the designers or the developers just view security as a complete nuisance. And, you know, you have to have it in some ways, but they don't want it in there. Whereas the security professionals, 
view UX as kind of a waste of time. And, you know, if users were just smarter, then they wouldn't be clicking things. And thus, they don't really meet in the middle. And I think that's an area that really is, it's not only right for opportunity, but it's something that absolutely needs to be explored. Because ultimately, I think that's towards making meaningful change in the industry. It's not going to be you know, creating some new product that stops, you know, in memory exploitation, it's going to be how to encourage users to make better uh, or more secure decisions as they conduct their various IT activities. Um, And I think it's, it's sort of similar, there's no magic, you know, diet that's suddenly going to fix people's diet woes, right? A, A lot of times it depends on certain things. But I think people oftentimes don't have that kind of understanding or empathy on, you know, understanding why someone may not be able to follow through on a diet. So I think it actually is, uh, there are some parallels. And that's something I pointed out in one of my talks is that, um, you know, I I would doubt that every single, you know, offensive researcher, information security professional has an absolutely impeccable diet or fitness program. So maybe you should consider the fact that for similar reasons, um, you know, maybe other people's security hygiene might not be up to snuff, you know, they have their own jobs to fulfill. Developers have to be getting out code constantly. Um, Salespeople have to be selling constantly. So it's kind of natural that security isn't the first thing on their mind. So instead of just blaming them, how about try to work with them and understand their perspective and where you can start to bring security in, in a way that actually, you know, hopefully helps their job at the very least doesn't disrupt it. And we've come back to discussing human problems, not just technical problems. (laughs) No, thank you, Kelly. The work that you're doing is really fascinating. The research that you're doing is really fascinating. I think it's so important to not only look at what has kind of created some of the problems we're currently facing, but how we can turn it around and apply that to make the situation and our environments better. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing and also for joining me today on the podcast. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And I I really do hope that uh, hopefully the narrative in the industry changes and we can start to move past this status quo that's pretty inefficient right now. Thank you for listening. You can reach Kelly on Twitter at Swagata. If you like the show, remember to subscribe to the O'Reilly Security Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. <laughs>